can't lead if you don't love. You can't save if you don't serve. So there are two questions to ask yourself if you want to be a leader, if you think of yourself as a leader. One, if I'm right, that you can't lead without loving or save without serving. Number one, what is the depth of your love for everyday people? Mm -hmm. And secondly, what is the quality of your service to them? I don't care about your last name, about your degrees how much money you make, what neighborhood you live in, who your mom and them are, what kind of hookup or access you have. If you're going to be a leader, answer those two questions. What is the depth of your love for people and what is the quality of your service to them? So I judge leaders by the depth of their love and the quality of their service. Not about all the stuff they say, okay. who they know, who they hang out with. Do you love people? Mm -hmm. But where's the fruit of that? Okay. Do you serve people? How are you serving people? That's how I judge leaders. So, so where does the depth of your love for black people come from? Because one of the things mm -hmm. that you know I often talk about here on the show is is you know this generation's lack of cultural competency, mm -hmm. right? I ain't never sure. seen so many slave movies in all my life, right? Mm -hmm. We grew up with Roots. Mm -hmm. These kids have Django, Twelve Years a Slave, um, but there's there we don't portray slaves as heroes. Mm -hmm. So growing up, uh, how was that cultural competency and that love for for black people specifically yeah. uh, instilled in you? What did your parents expose you to? Um, what was it about you know, being grown up black mm -hmm. uh, in America that made you just love and want to serve your people? The two things initially were, um, as I said earlier, Councilman Hogan, okay. seeing this black man love and serve black people. So having a, a living epistle Mm -hmm. that I could watch every day. And then I started doing my first my first ever internship before I ever knew what the word was, was working with Councilman Hogan. Okay. I would go to his house and help him respond to letters and open mail. And this is a little small town, so his office was in his house, you know. Um, so having a, an example in front of me, a living epistle, as I said, every day, uh, who loved and served black people and found joy in doing that was my first example. And then the more I, I, I keep repeating myself, but I can't say this enough because, again, my friends know this. The more I came to understand who Martin Luther King Jr. was, mm. and I don't mean the king that we think we know about. I have a dream. I ain't talking about that. I have a book about King, as you know, that I wrote yeah. like a couple of years ago. It's becoming a movie. J.J. Abrams of Star Star Wars fame and I are doing a movie. Is that right? What is yeah. it coming out? Just to digress for a little bit. We, have, we, have, we, have, announced, we have announced a date yet. Okay. We, we're, we're literally we're on, we're on the second draft of the screenplay right now. So I'm just honored. To be, I'm just. Uh-oh. We okay? Yeah, we, okay. I'm just honored to be with J.J. doing it, mm -hmm. um, given who he is. But I wrote a book about, it's called Death of a King. The book is about the last year of Dr. King's life. Okay. And people don't know this story of how everybody in America turned against him in the last year of his life. Mm. King couldn't get a book deal. They wouldn't run his op-eds in the newspapers. Um, he could not get a paid speech. He was disinvited to the White House. Mm. He was disinvited to black churches. He dies bankrupt, and Harry Belafonte has to pay for his funeral. Those are the crib notes on the Why last don't we year. Know that? We don't know it because we're stuck in 1964 okay. when he gave the I Have a Dream speech yes. at the March on Washington. He's dead far too soon, but he's not dead until 19, you know, he's, he's, he's dead, you know, he lives five years after the March on Washington. Okay. I said 64, 63 is the March on Washington. So he lives five years later. Um, and, and in the last year, because he came out so vehemently against the war in Vietnam, mm. Everybody turned against him. Even his own people? His own people. Okay. The last poll taken in his life, Harris poll, almost three quarters of the American people thought he was irrelevant. Three quarters of the American people. But here's the number. Almost 60% of black people thought he was persona non grata. 60% mm. of his own people. The president of the NAACP, Roy Wilkins, came out publicly against Dr. King because of his opposition to the war. Um, Roy Wilkins in NAACP. 
at the Urban League, Whitney Young, came out publicly against Dr. King. Mm. Carl Rowan, the most renowned black journalist of his day, came out publicly against Dr. King. And what Thurgood Marshall, yes, that Thurgood Marshall, what he said about Dr. King, I can't even repeat on this radio program. Mm, it's internet, yes you can. He said, well, I wouldn't though. My mama may be listening. <laughs> the point is that the bourgeois elite Negroes came out against him because they were mad at Martin because Martin was in a tete-a-tete -tete with Lyndon Johnson in the mm -hmm. White House. Mm -hmm. They'd worked together to pass the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So Lyndon Johnson had really been the best friend black folk had had in the White House since Lincoln freed the slaves. Mm. And black folk, the bourgeois elite, were like, why are you pissing off Lyndon Johnson? Okay. So they didn't like that. The younger blacks, the bourgeois elite Negroes, the younger Negroes weren't into Dr. King because it was, this is now, you know, this is 67, 68. Mm -hmm. They got their fist in the air. They want black power. Black power They're yeah. down with Stokely Carmichael. Yeah. They're down with U.E.P. Newton. The Panthers. The Panthers. They don't want, Martin is too passive yeah. for them, mm -hmm. too passe and too passive. And so he has no constituency even inside of black America. Mm. And so the last year of his life, he dies a lonely, he never lost hope. He kept organizing the Poor People's Campaign. But that Negro was persona non grata. He was so toxic in the last year of his life that black folk, some major black folk didn't want to be seen in pictures with Martin Luther wow. King. He was just that toxic. So it's a story about him we don't know. But if you think that, you know, King is at his best, yet I have a dream, you don't know him. Right. He's at his best as we are in those dark hours in our lives when everybody turns against us. Mm -hmm. That's who I get to know who Starlet really is. Right. In the dark moments when nobody wants to be around you, when you've been abandoned, when you've been isolated, because the truth that you are telling is so subversive. That Negroes can't handle it. Yeah. And when they turn their back on you, that's when we see who you I'm really so are. I'm so glad you said that because I am going to talk to you about, you know, how black people don't want to be uh, held accountable. Sure. Um, but I want to fast forward uh, and, and thank you for that insight on, on Dr. King because I think it's so crucial yeah. uh, that we, we better appreciate his contribution, yeah. right, and not just kind of have him as this um, icon, icon, yeah. and, and not really, because I even say that about the Montgomery bus boycott sure. movement, right? Like we, our generation didn't understand that that was more economic as well as it was political. That's really where our with King we get caught power up, is. Yeah, with King we get so caught up in his iconography. Yes that we lose sight of his humanity. Yes. And this book, Death of a King, is not about the iconography, it's about the humanity and what this man went through in the last year that most of us don't know. When do you have time to write books? It's, it's a process. I have a system now, I've written, you know, about tw I mean, this 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 last book, the Michael Jackson book, was the last one, I guess. That's book number 21, I'm up to 21 now. Oh, but I'm the point is that I have, a, yeah, I have a system now where I, um, I, I, I work with my research team to get the research done. In the actual writing of the book, I, I stopped doing speeches. I stopped traveling for three months. If I sit down for three solid months and just write, I can actually get the book written, and then we go into the editing. So it takes me about three months to actually sit and write, but I've been doing it for so long, I have a system about how I get that in. So I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your quickly about your political career, because you sure. did run for L.A. City Council. I did. Um, you came in fourth place out of 15. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? I mean, when you see these candidates going around, yeah. I'm sure you can sympathize with them, you know, yeah. to some degree. But uh, first of all, what made you want to run? Yeah. Um, was love, that love, wanted to love and serve people. And yeah. it, you were running for city um, council, six, city council for South LA. Yeah, yeah. And so, how was that experience? It was a great like? experience. I wouldn't change it for the. I wouldn't change it for anything for a number, number of reasons. One, because I'd worked for the mayor in Bloomington. I'd worked for Tom Bradley. It was the next logical progression for me to want to be on the city council. But I was running against an incumbent, and so it's always hard to beat incumbents. I learned about the incumbency effect, the stuff I'd been studying in college. I saw firsthand okay. about how difficult it is to raise money, how difficult it is to beat an incumbent when they get entrenched. So that was a lesson learned. But the most important lesson for me, aside from 
of meeting people and expressing myself and making an argument and getting votes and, and campaigning. I learned all of that stuff, of course. But the most important lesson for me was at the end when I lost. I was going to ask you, what, what lesson did you get from I losing? talk about this in this book, 50 for Your Future. There's a, it's a book here of 50 short stories of lessons I've learned along the way. Again, it's called 50 for Your Future. One mm -hmm. of the lessons in that book is that rejection can be redirection. Mm. You have to look at rejection as redirection. Okay. So the voters rejected me. I didn't win. But it was that rejection that led to my redirection. I'm doing all the stuff that I'm doing now because I lost that city council race. Right. If I'd won that council race, I might still be running around trying to figure out what seat I'm running for next right. because I've been termed out of the one that I'm in mm -hmm. rather than being clear about why I was doing what I was doing and where I was going to do it. So losing that race, that rejection redirected me to doing all the stuff that I've been blessed to do in, in the media over these years. So I look at look back at it with great with, with great uh, with great appreciation for what happened. So did that kill your aspirations to want to be in political office after that? It, it well, the, the loss didn't kill it. Okay. What killed it was finding where I was really supposed to be. Okay. And that's where I am now. Absolutely. So what killed it? I don't. Have, I have no interest in running for office ever again. <laughs> but what killed it was not the loss, but it was the It was it was the discovery, mm -hmm. discovering what I was put here to do. What type of challenges did you have as a young professional mm -hmm. running? Uh, for you know a public office because now you see these millennials mm -hmm. um, who need to kind of take the baton. Yeah. I mean, take sure. the baton. Sure. Um, so, what is your you know your your lessons that you would say to young you know black uh, millennials or mm -hmm. young professionals who are, are looking to yeah. uh, take political office? I encourage I encourage young folk to be involved in the process. I encourage young folk to run, but I encourage them to run for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. I see too many young I see not enough young folk running for office. But sometimes I see too many people in certain places around the country. I travel all the time. I see young folk running for office for the wrong reasons. What are it's some of those reasons? Status, okay. stature, mm -hmm. the symbolism power. of it, power. Yeah. Yeah. They're running for the wrong reasons. They don't have any history. They have no history of loving and serving people. And then they pop up and want to run for office. Mm -hmm. One day you're on a reality show. Next day you're doing this. Next day you're doing that. Next yeah. day you're running for Congress. Yeah. Well, how did that happen? Right. And where was the love and service that you exhibited to express to us that you really cared enough about us to deserve our vote. Right. I mean, by the time that I ran for city council, I'd worked, I'd been a student student leader in college. I had worked for the mayor of Bloomington. I had worked for Pat Russell. We skipped past that, but that's no problem. I'd worked for Pat Russell, who was the president of the city council, okay. in the district where we sit right now. Mm -hmm. I was Pat's aide in this part of the city in Westchester. Nice. So I'd worked for Pat Russell, the city council president. I'd worked for Tom Bradley. I'd worked for Mark Ridley Thomas at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference at a community-based organization. I ran for office at 26. Yeah, track record. I'd, but I ran at 26. But wow. I'd done all of that mm -hmm. by the time I turned 26. And I see too many people sometimes whose last name makes yes. them famous yes. or known to voters. They ain't done nothing. Yes. But, you, but your last name gives you an opportunity or who you know gives you an opportunity. Somebody picks you and makes you, you know, a star. Yes. But you haven't really it's done it. It's your turn. It's your turn, but you right. ain't really done nothing. Yeah. I don't like that. I don't like that. And I don't vote for people like that. Okay. I, I don't vote for you. I, I want to see a track record of loving and serving people before you get my vote. Fantastic. Uh, you eventually transitioned to radio and TV. Mm -hmm. um, so why did you feel it was so important for you to share your views on, on race and, and politics. And, and at the time, who were you who were you speaking to? Were you speaking yeah. to your peers? Were you just speaking to black people? Who was your message the for? The opportunity came because I'd run for city council here in L.A. because I lost. But I had, had gotten enough votes and enough support and raised enough money to realize that I had something to say that people 
resonated with. Okay. Because you don't win doesn't mean people don't resonate with what you have to say. Okay. Bernie Sanders didn't win. Okay. But a whole lot of folk resonated with what Bernie had to say. Absolutely. And I'm glad he said it, and I'm glad he's still saying it. And I felt the same way about my race. I lost, but the evidence was clear that I had something to say, and people listened to it. Mm -hmm. And so what I did, long story short, was to create an opportunity. And sometimes when you, when you look for opportunities, they aren't there. You have to create them. Yeah. I needed something. I had planned when I lost to run for office again. I'd you know, done reasonably well the first time, but running against an incumbent. She couldn't run the next time around. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a wide open seat. So I'm like, I got a plan to get ready to run in four years. What do I need? I need a job that's going to keep my name out front, that's going to pay me some money to take care of these bills, and that's going to give me an opportunity to be heard on the issues that matter in this city. Okay. Those are my three criteria. How do I make some money to pay these bills? How do I keep my name out front? And how can I be in a position to talk about issues that matter? That job didn't exist because mm. anybody that wants to run for re-election or run again wants a job that does that for four years. Keep your name out front, pay your bills, let you be heard on the issues. Absolutely. That platform didn't exist. I created it nice. with a little program called The Smiley Report. And that was on KJLH? On KG, before KJLH, I was on KGFJ on okay. the AM dial. Then I jumped KGFJ. to KJLH. I was on KJFJ, the oldest, <laughs> the dusties. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> and I jumped to KJLH because one day Stevie Wonder called me. Uh. And had heard me on KGFJ, said, you, your commentary is really is banging. You, we have, would you like to come to FM? Would you like to come to KGLH? A bigger audience, yada, yada, yada. Stevie called me, made the offer, and I jumped to KGLH, and the rest is history. And so that's how I got started. But that, that, that opportunity wasn't there. I had to create it okay. to give me the, what I wanted. And once I got into that, mm -hmm. once I got into that, one thing just led to another. And I never got back to running for office again. Never because got back. the platform just kept growing and growing and growing. And here I am now. On started <laughs> on the dialogue. Yeah, start I'm, I'm at the top of the mountain. Now. <laughs> yeah. uh, in 2000, you began hosting the annual town hall called uh, "The State of Black oh, Union," and yeah. I used to love watching yeah, those. Yeah. I enjoyed doing um, uh, So, talk about your goals and, and objectives of that of those series yeah. of town halls, and what happened to them? The goals and objectives were met. There were not only great conversations that came out. A lot of local organizations were started because they were empowered by those events every year on C-SPAN. So a lot of a lot of local organizations were started. Various chapters were started. Um, all kinds of communities did that same kind of gathering in their communities locally. So I got invited. You know, I still get invited to these conversations that happen across the country that started on an annual basis in local cities because they wanted to replicate what we were doing on the national mm -hmm. stage. The point was very simply to bring together um, all the brightest thought leaders, opinion makers, influencers in our country in black so that folk could see what we had to say about the issues of the day. Now, keep in mind, here's how fast technology works. When all of this started, there was no black blogosphere. Okay. There weren't people like you doing what you do now. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't a bunch of syndicated black radio hosts. Tom, Tom Joyner was the only one. Mm -hmm. There was no Steve Harvey. There was no Russ Parr. There was no Doug Banks. God rest his soul. The point was we were so far ahead when we started doing these State of Black Union symposia that all these other platforms didn't even exist. There was no mm -hmm. black Twitter verse. There was no Black Lives Matter. None of that stuff existed. There wasn't no Barack Obama even thought of right. when we started doing this all these years ago. It was, it was an occasion once a year. I mean, just imagine. We had, there was such a dearth and such a paucity of places for black people to come talk about issues that mattered yeah. that just one day a year, mm -hmm. one day a year, we brought together all these brilliant black minds yes, and put them on C-SPAN so we would have our say once a year. And that's why it lasted all day, a morning panel, yes, afternoon did. panel, because we ain't going to talk but once a year. We're going to take up all, all day, day on C-SPAN. Absolutely. And the ratings on that thing were humongous. And every year C-SPAN told me it was always the most ordered videotape of the year. 
Uh, now everything is downloadable. Back then, you had to order the videotape. Yeah. That's how long ago this was. So the mission was to get us together to talk, to put these issues out there and let the country hear from us. And then you fast forward a few years, and now we have all these other platforms. I'm glad we have them now. But when there were no other platforms, we created that platform. Yeah, a matter of fact, uh, truth be told, it inspired me in, in 2013. I, I had a, a panel called the a Dialogue of Black L.A. Wonderful. And at the time, uh, Eric Garcetti and Wendy yeah. Gruel were, were courting for mm -hmm. the black vote. Sure. And, and so my charge was, you know, if we're going to court, if they're mm -hmm. going to try to uh, get the black vote, let's That's hold it. them accountable to That's agenda. And so part of my, and we're going to talk about this later on, but our, our challenge as black people is not having an agenda to hold uh, politicians accountable to. You understand? And so, yeah, so I had Karanga, I had Karen Bass, I, you know I me, mean, I followed your model. Mm -hmm. It wasn't all day, yeah. um, but my goal was to mobilize black people so that we can hold them accountable. That's right. Um, to, and what was interesting about that whole race, which you know, is Wendy Grew had every black endorsement mm -hmm. in LA and, and still, still lost. lost. Yeah. Wendy and I, I know Wendy and Eric both very well. Wendy and I worked together when I started with Tom Bradley. Wendy was there. Mm -hmm. So Wendy and I worked together in the mayor's office. And Garcetti, uh, Garcetti's father was the DA mm -hmm. when I worked for Tom Brandon. Mm -hmm. So I know his father uh, very well and knew him through his father. And Wendy, again, Wendy and I worked together. So I knew both of them in that race. It was fascinating for me to see how that played out. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Um, so I want to kind of bring us fast forward mm -hmm. to, to Obama. Sure. Um, when Obama first came on the scene in, mm -hmm. in 2007, 2008, how did you feel about him running for president? I knew him. He'd been friends. Okay. He was a friend of mine in Chicago. He had worked with he had worked with my foundation. Okay. Uh, we had a had he been on your show prior to that? Oh, many times. Okay, all right. Um, well, actually, that's not true. When he first, I mean, when I first met him, he was still an Illinois state senator. Okay. So that's when I met him. Uh, he, he we 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 talked, and I knew he had bigger plans. But he was in the Illinois state senate, and started working with my foundation, the chapter that we had basically in Chicago. So every every, every time I would go to Chicago, we'd hang out and talk and yada yada yada. So I knew him as a friend and knew him as a brother and supporter of my foundation in Chicago. And then he ran for the U.S. Senate, and he started appearing on my national television program when he was running for the Senate. And while he was in the Senate, he was on a bunch of times. He's been on my program probably a dozen times okay. over the years. Uh, and then the campaign for president, you know, jumped off. And he and I had to talk about it, a long talk. And I said to him, your job is to run for president, and my job is to hold you accountable. Mm. And I expect So he knew do, that going in, that we, you were going to hold him accountable. We both talked about it. Okay. And every time we talked on the phone, when he was running for president, he called me regularly. Okay. He called me regularly. And I'd at my office, they'd say, Senator Obama's on the phone. And, and they'd be all excited because Obama was on the phone. And mm -hmm. so he called my office. He called my house. He has my, called my cell number. So we talked all the Did time. Did you think he had a chance? Um, it, 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 it was uncertain in the beginning because Hillary was, Hillary was just so well known okay. in the black community. Mm -hmm. Um, and so whether he had a chance that was really irrelevant, I was glad to see him run. Okay, he good. was part of that, that Shirley Chisholm, Jesse Jackson tradition. So I was happy to see him run. I, okay. did, I did not discourage him from running. Okay. And so when he got in the race, he called me consistently, asked for my advice and talked about this, that, and the other. And every time we closed the conversation on the phone, he would say to me, I know you got a job to do. Mm. And I got a job to do. All those conversations, we weren't, we weren't always in agreement. Okay. But every conversation closed with you do your job. I'm going to do, do my job. Okay. All right. And. And that's 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 where it was. Okay. So Barack Obama was very clear about what my position was. Okay. And I was clear about what his position was. Okay. And so my job is to hold you accountable, and that means some, on sometimes sometimes we gonna go head to head on okay. this. But right. there's no love lost. Mm -hmm. You still my brother, and at the end of the day, I'm still voting for you. Okay. I voted for Barack Obama twice, just like everybody else did. The only okay. difference was I just tried to hold him hold, accountable. Hold him accountable. Yeah. Uh, so where did he go wrong um, with you, and 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 why were you and 
and uh, Cornell, Dr. West, so critical of him. And I just want to quickly read a quote that sure, sure. Uh, I have. You said that the data is going to indicate, Sally, that when Obama is, when the Obama administration is over, black people will have lost in every single leading economic indicator uh, category. What made you say that? Just uh, the facts. I didn't just make it up. It's true. Right. Okay. The data is clear. You, go to the Pew, you can go to the Pew, go to the Pew data, mm-hmm. go to the census data, go to any data. The data is clear, and the White House does not dispute this, okay. that in every major economic category – over the last 10 years, which includes the eight years of his administration, we have lost ground in every major economic category. Mm-hmm. That is the book that you have in front of you right now, The yes. Covenant with Black America 10 Years Later. Yeah. We did this book 10 years ago. Before anybody ever heard of Barack Obama, mm-hmm. we did this book. And the book went on to become the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. It stayed there for weeks and weeks and weeks because every Negro in America bought a copy of that book because we were looking for an agenda. Now, keep in mind, it's important to me to lay this out very quickly. When this book came out 10 years ago, Barack Obama was not on the scene. Mm -hmm. We were sick and tired of George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. He was on his way out. It was just after Katrina. And we came together under the aegis of the State of the Black Union and said collectively, we are going to put together an agenda. Mm. We're, gonna, we're not going to get caught this way ever again. So in 2008, we are going to have an agenda that we're going to hold everybody accountable to. But this is in 2006. Okay. So the book comes, that's 2016, right? Yeah. Ten years later. Yeah. So 2006, two years before he showed up, mm-hmm. Barack Obama, we had a book called The Covenant with Black America. Yes, you did. This is our agenda. And when Obama showed up, Negroes were like, well, hold up. He black. He's black. Your brother got a shot. We ain't going to hold him accountable just yet. Mm. We ain't going to ask him no tough questions just yet. I know we agreed to what we said we were going to do. and we, I know we put the book at number one and everybody had a copy of it. We were all on the same agenda, but not so fast. Okay. And my thing was, this is the plan. Mm-hmm. These are the 10 issues. Mm-hmm. And so on Tom Joyner, the 10 issues that were in that book, I worked through those issues. Mm. And I asked Hillary questions, and I asked Obama questions, but black people wanted a black president so bad yeah, uh-huh. that they didn't want him asked tough questions about the book but, that all of us had gotten behind. See, but don't we see that even in our local campaigns, that we don't hold our black politicians accountable? We treat them like celebrities? Yeah. Celebrities? Yeah. I mean, especially here in Los Angeles, Absolutely. right? We still got potholes, but exactly. we're waving at you in the King Parade. That's what it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know it's true. But it's true. It is funny, though. It's true. But, but it's true because we haven't been taught how to hold our politicians accountable. And we take it. And, and, think, and I know my people. That's why you've never, ever heard me. Whenever you ask me a question, anybody ask me a question, I'll answer the question. But there's never any venom in me for black people. I love black people. Mm-hmm. And there ain't nothing they can do about it. We have to be held accountable. We've got to be held accountable. And I love our people. So I'll never lash out at people. But I understand that we are an emotional people. And we wanted Barack Obama to win by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. I get that. And so I had to pay a heavy price for that. People yeah, got mad at me. People got upset with yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, talk about the backlash. How, how did the community respond? How did Black Hollywood respond to I you? I lost. I got shut out of everything. I got disinvited to everything. I did lost. you anticipate that? Were you surprised by that? I was surprised by it. I didn't, Why were you surprised? I, didn't, I anticipated uh, surprised because I'd been so respected. Okay. And I think I still am. It's not about, it's not about respect. People just disagree with me. Um, but people just I, – I didn't see that kind of um, – that kind of, you know, venom mm. coming at me. But it it, it, it cost me friendships. Mm. Um, there's certain people that, did, you know, that wrote me off as their friends. People didn't want it. Like, I felt like I felt like Dr. King in that sense. I was going to say when you said yeah. that, I, I'm sure you could relate to him. Well, yeah, but I am no king. Just be clear but about that. But just in terms of just being ostracized yeah, by yeah. your people who loved you. I was ostracized. I, I was toxic. I got disinvited to everything. Um, I lost millions and millions of dollars. And um, sponsorships? Sponsors started dropping me. 
my popularity, you know, my, we have a thing called a Q rating in my business and my Q rating dipped, you know, really, really low. Um, so it was tough. For how know. long? How long did his whole his whole term? Most of it. It's uh -huh. been in the last in the last uh, once he it's, it's funny you should ask that question. It's a great question. Stuff. Once he got reelected, we could feel the shift. OK, because I think Negro said, you know what? Now he's in for a second term and you can't do him no damage. Mm -hmm. <sighs> we can breathe. And the minute he hit that second term, mm. my speech, my speeches started coming back again. The invitation started coming back again. People want to hang out with you. I'm getting phone calls from people. People want to come back on my TV show. Now, in the in, in the interim, it didn't stop me from working. Okay. I still put out books. I was still on the cover of Time magazine. I'm still doing deals at Warner Brothers. I'm hanging out with J.J. Abrams doing movies. I mean, it didn't stop me one bit. That's why I said you stay focused on the work that you are called to do. Okay. We don't all wake up at the same time. Some folks' alarms go off at 4 a.m., some at 5, some at 6. Some Negroes never wake up. Some Negroes sleepwalk all the time. <laughs> so you got to tell the truth, right. and they're going to catch up with you when they catch up with you. Yeah. But because you get some pushback, it does not allow you to abrogate your responsibility to tell the truth that you know. And that does not mean that Tavis has a monopoly on the truth. I do not have a monopoly on the truth. Okay. And I ain't got a First Amendment right to anything but free speech. You ain't got to agree with me. But when you know the truth, it is your obligation to tell that truth that you know. And so what I'm saying now, what this book says 10 years later, The Covenant, is that in every economic category, 10 years after we did that book that everybody got a copy of, 10 years later, we have lost ground in every economic category. And in part, now it's not all Obama's fault, but, it happened, gonna, but right. it happened in part because we made no demands. Right. So were you holding him accountable to all 10 covenants? Absolutely. Uh, okay. And some of them he did okay on. I mean, okay. some of them he did better than others. Um, the healthcare thing was, you know, it's not what he said it was going to be. He watered it down, but we got something and something is better than nothing. Okay. But there were other issues he just did not measure up. And we all know what it. We can walk around the all day talk long. Talk about him. What, what, the where, brother where? did not want to talk about the race issue. Yeah. He got, it, his is. hand got forced by Black Lives Matter every time he did address it. His hands got forced because he doesn't, that's just not his makeup. He, does, he doesn't want to deal with that. I mean, at the end of eight years, I still ask myself sometimes, what are his core principles? Mm -hmm. What do you really believe in? I mean, believe in enough to put yourself on the line for it. Mm -hmm. So did you have higher question. expectations of him because he was a black president no, that he would I do more not, for black people? No, I didn't have a higher expectation. Okay. I had a, I had an expectation of him to do what you said you were going to do. Okay. This is the campaign you ran on. The accountable book that you referenced thoroughly lays out, and people have forgotten this, the accountable book lays out everything he said he was going to do. Now, mm. I recognize that he, I've said it many times, he had a headwind like no president in history. Okay. The obstructionism was real. And yet you have to live your life by a certain set of immutable principles. Mm -hmm. And if you say this is what you're going to fight for, my grandfather put it this way, there's some fights that ain't worth fighting even if you win, mm -hmm. but there are other fights that you have to fight even if you lose. Okay. And there are some fights he should have fought that he did not fight. And as a result of it, we have lost ground in every major economic category. Now, fast forward right quick. Down the road when he's gone, and we are past this moment of celebrating eight years and what he did, in fact, get accomplished, the historians are going to go to work. Mm. And the scientists are going to go to work and the data is going to start kicking out. And this brother is going to spend the rest of his life trying to explain why on his watch, the first black president, the bottom fell out for black America economically. Mm. He's going to spend the rest of his life trying to explain that. Mark my word, I predicted in his book, there's going to be a chapter about this. He's going to have to try to explain why with all the hopes and dreams and aspirations that black people had of him, he did not deliver 
substantively for black people. He did symbolically, okay. but not substantively. You think he will, after he gets out of office, you think he'll do more for black he's people? Gonna, he's going to do a whole lot more when he's gone. Okay. That, 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 uh, that project he announced, uh, My Brother's Keeper, mm -hmm. he can spend a whole lot of time doing that. But okay. the point is, it's after the fact. It's after the fact. It's still good work. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm like Mary J and, and Jay Z. I ain't knocking no hustle. You know, it's good work. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, and he'll, he'll raise the, he'll raise the stakes on it. Okay. But that's after the fact. When you have the power, Lyndon Johnson, when he was faced with having to pass voting rights and civil rights, and all them Southern Dixiecrats hated him. Lyndon Johnson said one day, if the presidency ain't about getting something done, what the hell is it for? Mm. And so you, you, you know, I wanted Obama to be. Not just a transactional president, but a transformational president. Not just a garden variety politician, uh, but a statesman. I wanted more because if you're going to be the first, then you got to do so well that you make sure that there's room for another. Okay. But if you don't measure up, they're going to give it. They, it's going to be a hard, long time for they give another room? one of us a chance. He didn't leave room for another. I don't think he. I don't think he embarrassed us. He did okay. not embarrass us at all. He didn't embarrass us, and I'm so grateful for that. And I mean, just the visual. Let's be clear. I about was going to ask you, did, you, the, did oh, it give on. you a sense of pride? I get, I get did you turned, cry? You saw I, Jesse crying on camera. <laughs> I was on. Go look at the. You can go find the tape. I was on the anchor desk at NBC with Tom Brokaw and Brian Williams the night that he won. They'd asked me to sit on the anchor desk with NBC. I was there when they called the election, and the minute that they called the election, the first person they gave comment to Tom Brokaw and Brian Williams said, "Tavis, you first and go find the tape, and you will see what I said that night on NBC, and I was as moved as anybody else. As I said before, I voted for him twice, not mm. once, but twice, and I get turned on as much as anybody else. I'm, not, I'm, a, political, I'm a political animal. Yeah, you are. I love watching that Negro bounce down them steps on Air Force One. <laughs> I love watching him walk down the red carpet and to Michelle. his press conference, and Michelle and the two precious right. babies. I love all of that. Chocolate so, uh, Michelle. That means, a, that means a lot to me. There's no doubt about that. I'm all... I'm in Hollywood. Yeah. I recognize the value of symbolism. Yeah. But it can't just be symbolism. There's got to be some substance as well. Absolutely. Um, real quickly, um, I wanted to ask you about, of course, the, the election coming up. Sure. Before I do that, you, black people, you got backlash from him. How do white people treat you? How do they respond to you? No backlash at all. Because okay. they, because it's, it's a different thing. They understand, not that we don't, but they understand critique. I'm mm -hmm. on PBS. Right. I'm on public radio. Mm -hmm. It's a smart, a smart audience. They understand critique. They understand seeing both sides of the issue. And I don't mean to suggest that black people don't. I'm just saying in this case, we were so gung-ho Barack Obama that it was hard to hear any critique of him, in part because we saw the hell coming at him from the right. right. And we didn't want to make it any more difficult for him. So in white America... My star continued to shine. I mean, I got, I was on the cover of Time magazine, got a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. All that happened while black folks weren't speaking to me. I was there when you But got all of that happened while the Negroes said, we ain't yeah, going to talk to them. How you, so, feel, how you feeling about the election coming up? Um, be glad when it's over. Um, it's been ugly. It's been vicious. Um, it's not been, um, it's not what America ought to be about. I think in the end, you know, I, I still expect that Hillary's going to win. Um, what does the Hillary presidency look like to you? She got to be held accountable. Okay. Black people have lined up once again, like behind her, like we've done behind Obama. And I get it because the choice of Donald Trump is so reprehensible. I mm -hmm. get that. But if we treat her with the same kind of hands-off approach we, we did with him, it's going to be another 10 years of us falling behind in do, every economic category. Do you think uh, politicians take the black vote for granted? Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. No doubt about it. I mean, how, do we, how do we strategize around How do we change that? It, it starts with it starts with doing what you try to do on this program. What I try to do is to hold people accountable. Yeah. But I I know because I've been through it that 
not enough people want to take the position that we take because there's hell that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine uses the phrase, he, he coined the term, he says, people don't want to be tavisized. Tavisized. That's my friend said, you don't want to be tavisized. <laughs> so I know a lot of people. I mean, all throughout this process, if I had a dime starlet for every Negro who called me on the down low, text me on the down low, mm. emailed me on the down low, mm-hmm. pulled me aside in person on the down low, telling me, keep telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to hold him accountable. You got to yeah. keep the pressure on. Yeah. If I had a dime for every Negro that did that, I'd be independently wealthy just on that alone. Absolutely. So everybody understood it, but nobody wanted to do, do it, it because yeah. there's a hell that comes along when you do it. And, and 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 part of what you and I both know is that we have to have an agenda. I don't, and, and why do black people feel like we need a, a leader? Do we need mm. a leader? I don't even know who the leader is of the Jews. Is there no. a leader of the Jews? No. So why do black people, why do we feel like we need a leader? We don't need a leader. We need a playbook. We need a plan. We need a plan. That's what you need. You don't, yeah, my, you know, my sister often says, you know, uh, when she read uh, Willie Lynch, she said she thought she read the white man's playbook. Yeah, yeah. Right? She's smart about that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, she does work in Rikers Prison as a, yeah. as a psychologist. Uh, I want to quickly talk about your the, the covenant with black America 10 years later. It's absolutely sure. fantastic. Uh, we're showing a list of your of your 10 covenants. How did you come up with these 10 covenants? I didn't. Black America did. I mean, the data indicates that these are the 10 issues. 10 years ago when we did the book, we just did the research. These are the 10 issues that were most important to black folks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what I love is, and I'm going to read real quickly, um, is uh, an excerpt from your, your introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is so powerful. Thank you. Um, it says, uh, what a difference a decade makes. At least that was my hope. Uh, Ten years ago, when I had the honor of compiling and editing the historic text, The Covenant with Black America, I had no idea that a decade later, life for black fellow citizens excuse me, would even be more challenged politically, economically, socially. Black health disparity still exists. Black children are still failing in our nation's classrooms. Our system of jurisprudence is still unequal. The digital divide is still firmly in place. We still lack environmental justice for all in America. 150 years after the Civil War, black folks still wonder whether their lives truly matter. Mm. It's time to claim our democracy, which starts by reclaiming the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of black America from the lost and the found. We have to be intentional. We have to have a plan. Ten years later, time is not on our side. Yeah. That is so profound, yes, especially the part about us still needing uh, an, an agenda. What are your thoughts on Black Lives Matter? Love them. Um, somebody's got to speak truth to power, mm-hmm. and they've done that, and I celebrate it, and I uh, have supported Mary Step of the Way. Thank you so much. I, there, are so, there are so many other questions. I wonder, will you please come back? I'll do it again. When your time allows. We'll make it happen. I absolutely. Thank you, Tavis, for, for coming on and, and giving us your insight. I'm going to give a shout out to Kim McFarland and Roland Wirt for uh, making my, this my happen. Friend, both of them, yeah. Absolutely. My yeah. show engineer, uh, Richard Carr, and videographer Ross Jordan. Thank you again for tuning in Richard to the thank you, dialogue. Uh, Real Talk, Real People. We're going to continue our series next week uh, when we recap uh, the presidential election. Dallas Fowler and Melina Lawrence are going to be here Two good ones. Uh, next week. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I want to kind of quickly close with, with the opening quote from your book uh, by Terry Tempest Williams. The eyes of the future are looking back at us and they are praying for us to see beyond our own time. I'm your host, Starlet Quarles. Thank you so much for tuning in, signing off as my mama's child and my daddy's baby girl. Until next week, God bless you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Starlet. Love you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to L.A. Talk Live, reality radio, handcrafted for your listening pleasure. This is L.A. Talk Live, and we're more than just talk. Stay tuned. <laughs> 